Yeah, they're up 7% still approximately at this, you know, as of recording. Hey, Phil. Got to take care of them. No, or I think they're going out. Oh, they're going out. Are you, uh, what are you doing? Uh, I'm trying to start a podcast. So, so we're recording. I'm recording, but I'm also on the, is it weird that I'm recording on the clock? Nah. <laughs> I don't know. So we're, we're calling it Drunkonomics, um, where we just get drunk and talk about the economy. Did you know that over $5 trillion exchanges hands on a daily basis? That's an average of over $220 billion an hour. Now how does this much money move every single day and why does it move the way it does? Here on Drunkonomics, two bartenders who also happen to be students at the University of Nebraska Graduate School of Business are going to sit down and drink to the global economy and try and translate it into English. So sit back, relax, pour yourself a stiff one, and have a drink with us to the comedy that is the global economy. And we're live. Welcome back to Drunkonomics, everybody. We appreciate you joining us, and I uh, hope you all are doing well and behaving drunkonomically. Well, as drunkonomically as you can, especially as, if you're at work. Especially if you're at work, which I am. I don't know if you heard from the previous conversation. Yes, I am on the clock. Live so, from Cigars Lounge. Live from Cigars Lounge in downtown Lincoln. <laughs> and I am on the clock, and we were recording, which is weird. But also beautiful. Yes, it's also beautiful. This is, you know, this is my way of being paid as I podcast. This is how, <laughs> this is how it all starts. Oh, shit, I should clock in then. Yeah, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm drinking. Oh, uh, yeah. Cheers to that, my man. <laughs> Anyways, if we could have a name for this episode... The name for this episode would be Be First, Be Smart, or Cheat. It's a great line from a great film. I don't know if you've seen Margin Call, but that's where we picked that up from. If you haven't seen Margin Call, you should definitely give it a watch. Either way, at one point in my life, a wiser person than myself once told me, if you want to make money in finance, and we're talking buku dollars, not just 20% returns from the S&P 500, but if you want to make buku dollars, there's three ways of doing it. Being first, being smart, or cheating. Being smart, obviously, is really tough because odds are you're not Bill Ackman or you're not Warren Buffett or Paul Tudor Jones or Ken Griffin and everyone else in between. So There's a lot of other smart people playing the game. So Exactly. And odds are you're not them. So being smart is really, really tough to achieve. And cheating, well, you know, we don't endorse any of that, any of that kind of behavior. No, neither should criminal, you. That's criminal yes, activity. We don't, yeah, that's criminal activity. We, you know, we don't want you to go to jail and we don't want you to hate your life. And be depressed. Therefore, the real way people can make buku bucks is by being first. Just be first. Be first to the game. It's a lot easier, yeah. You're going to be the first one into a company that's going to show explosive growth, or you can be the first one out before things go absolutely badly. But Exactly. As long, so, as, long as you're first, you don't get caught in the door, you're probably going to do okay. Yeah, and if you can find out information first, then... Obviously, you're going to make more money than someone who finds it out way later than you. Mm -hmm. And we saw a lot of this during the whole trade negotiation between Trump and China. Trump's Twitter account is like a loose cannon on a merry-go-round, right? <laughs> you literally, it's, it's seriously, I mean, it's literally, he sets the cannon on a merry-go-round, he lights the fuse, and he spins the merry-go-round, and it, it, it'll shoot off in whatever direction it it pleases. <laughs> It'll also take the market with the cannonball. So sometimes he'll say something like, just met with President Xi today. 
feeling really optimistic about a trade deal coming along or something along those lines, maybe in like, you know, more of a fifth grade lingo. And, <laughs> uh, and the markets would go crazy. Everyone yeah, would go up 500 points. Markets show explosive growth when they think, oh, things are going to return to normalcy. We'll end up with a normalized trade relationship. Yeah, and then and then all of a sudden something else will happen. Well, I think what what really happened is it turned out that whatever he'd said was bullshit. Uh, you know, it was just it was uninformed right. ramblings, and right. then the market would react. Exactly. So we saw we saw a lot of volatility in the trade negotiations, the whole trade talks before phase one, and even after, even since phase one, we've still seen a lot of volatility. And with this whole coronavirus outbreak thing, we're seeing a crazy amount of volatility. Because there's so much uncertainty, which is funny, because usually volatility is kind of an has an implied negative to it. Yeah, um, the implication is that volatility or in a very volatile market is when risks go up and when risk goes up, um, you tend to see a downside, or things tend to tend to trade down. But I don't think we've really seen that. I mean, we've seen some. We've had some bad days, and today, I mean, I guess the markets down a little bit 80 points right now well this week was actually a pretty steady week but as a whole yeah things were growing this week yeah relatively speaking but and but we still had several hundred point swings this week we did and that's and that's one of those things we're ending up on the right side of it in that the markets are ending up more often than they aren't and they're undoing their losses but it's still there's a lot of chaos yeah and because what initially happened was when the coronavirus became a thing everybody panicked so then we saw this giant 600 point downswing in the markets and then we saw a couple more downswings in the markets and then ev- and then two days later everybody was like you know what? i think we kind of overreacted back there and the markets went back up and you know within three days you know the markets kind of covered all their losses yeah and the, the next market you know, responds in a positive way yeah. to you know it, it's like okay well we had our reaction to that on friday it's now monday we've already reacted <coughs> time to pretend that it's not a thing anymore yeah and every, everyone's trying to be first uh, and and guess right on well everything how, generally how, yeah everything but you know especially with this coronavirus thing, because there's so many implications to what this coronavirus can really do to the global economy especially in the u.s i mean what were you saying like wuhan which is where the coronavirus hit initially yeah it, so the wuhan it, region wuhan wuhan sorry that they're responsible for what 60 percent of the of, of the world's steel production so what i had read is that 90 percent of chinese steel is made in that region and china's responsible for i think 60 percent or 50 percent of world steel production mm-hmm. i when i did when i did the numbers um last week we you know just ballparking with very large number which is kind of a best guess that the world if, if they stay shut down for uh if their steel production stays shut down for a concerted period world steel production will fall to 52% of what it was in previous years. Really? So 48% of the world's steel right now isn't being produced. Dang. So, yeah, so yeah, almost 60% of the world's steel is at a production halt. Yeah, it, it, it's very, it, it, it's a problematic thing. And then, and it, but it also makes sense if you look at it from the perspective of if you're manufacturing that much steel, there must be a reason someone's consuming it. But Chinese auto manufacturing is also in Wuhan. And that's not producing, right? So they're not making cars. So they don't need as much steel. So there's probably there's a decrease in demand for steel. But we've been seeing that for a while, the slowdown. But there's also this decrease in production. I think that's I think the pr- decrease in product and supply is going to exceed the decrease in demand. So it's still gonna there's still gonna be a change. So you're so price. so you're saying like if you had if you had to graph this out, so you're saying the demand would still be really high. 
I think the, I think or the, not really high, but it obviously it'll go down a little bit. But supply is going to go way I down. Think the, yeah, I think the supply shift is going to be substantially greater. So is that going to? So are we going to see an increase in steel prices here pretty soon? Or? I think we will, and I think you have to because even if you're you know, say demand falls by 20%, we're still looking at 48% decrease in supply, nearly 50% decreases. Uh-huh. So when you suddenly have half of something that you used to have, that's a substantial shock. Yeah, absolutely. But, okay, so let, let's say steel production. If, slu- if 60% of the world's steel production, or almost 60% of the world's steel production slows down, mm-hmm. or it, has, has it completely, has, is it completely brought to a halt already? Or in um, you know, I don't... I don't know. I, you know, uh, the, the information, I don't have the same information that everyone right, else has um, or that the markets um, or that steel guys would have. But, I mean, looking at it right now, I'm seeing that as of three days ago, they're saying that um, Chinese factories are still closed. So I would assume that if the Chinese factories are still closed, their foundries are closed, too. I'm, I'm guessing what that means is if it's, if it's closed, that means zero production. Zero production, that would be my so guess. Or, or maybe it's running on a very low automated... Just to keep things, yeah. You but know. Th- the thing is, okay. So if six, if ten percent of the world's steel production stopped for a week, not not much would happen. No. But sixty percent for one week, we might see a, a tiny shock. At least, at least in I this think, quarter. I think you'd see. At least in this quarter, right? I think we would see in this quarter. What what I think you look at is how long does it take that steel to get to market? When is that? When is that like? When is that? Are talking about like the life cycle or cash cycle of, of steel? No, like so. There's steel on ships and there's steel on railroads that's being sent that was already sold that's already been shipped, uh-huh. right? So the supply, like, so in a few weeks, there's going to come a point where there is no steel to sell, right? Or the steel that there is to sell is just not enough, enough of it. So I think that you're waiting for that kind of gully of steel, which is. Um, I mean, at this point, it's not like it's a valley that has an ups- an uptick at the end of it. It's still just fallen off. Obviously, the markets are reacting to this now because they're anticipating this giant shock in Q two in Q one earnings. I guess because when Q one when Q one Q one comes out in like what March? In Q two, yeah. yeah. So, so Q one will be revealed in Q two, and I don't think the markets are taking that into account yet. Markets are still reacting to Q4. But I thought we had a really good Q4. We and did. I thought, and I thought the economy had a, had a really strong report, or like as far as jobs reports and yeah, we did. Wage, wages and unemployment. I mean, I did see things. Yeah, there are still some troubling signs. There, there, there's still some troubling signs because I, wa- I, I, I was watching CNBC the other day, and it was like employment numbers are great, but the job quality numbers are yeah. low. No, it is. It's, I mean, we can look at a lot of factors, and one of the big ones is that income really hasn't, kept pace with production like so you see like all the graphs of like the last 50 years right and they show efficiency and production have shot up but incomes you know the average income hasn't Uh so you get this thing where it's people are working a lot people are producing a lot more than they used to but they're not being rewarded for that work so yeah there is i think there's a there's a big problem with job satisfaction i think the other thing they look at is they say you know there's always the, the suspicious question of like how unemployment numbers they they talk about unemployment, but they don't always talk about workforce participation. Well, I mean, and but and that was a huge knock on Obama, which is kind of crazy. When when Obama was in office, he showed great employment numbers, mm-hmm. and you know, and then you have all the Republicans saying, "Well, the workforce participation is really low; it's the lowest it's ever been." So these numbers are inflated, but it's like it's. I don't think much has changed now. You know, it's so, employment numbers are great now. Yeah, and I think I think what. Um, what historically we've seen during recession is that, um, or, or depression, is that 
that's the perfect time for a lot of people to go back to school or to go get that next degree. Yeah. So you'll get people who have... So that workforce participation is just... It's going to stay low while they're yeah. in school. But then they come out and they have a better education. I mean, the millennial generation, This is the if you look at it, the com, com, considering the complaints, the millennial generation is the most educated generation in the history of this country. Yes, absolutely. And yet somehow the older generations, the preceding generations, still like to come after us for not being this or that. And it's like, well, you do realize we came of age somewhere. So this generation has, to, you know, within eight years, we had two extremely defining moments. On September 11th, 2001, we realized oh, wow, like, the world is a very dangerous place. Like, it didn't used to be. Now the world is a very dangerous place. Yeah, and then and seven years later, there's this wake-up call, well, the economy is also very fragile. And so you have this generation that has, essentially, that came of age in a time of war, fought the war, the country's economy went, went to hell while they're still fighting the war. Yeah. And now this generation has come out. This is the generation that fought the war, grew up with a certain level of uncertainty, both politically and then economically. Yeah, and, so, and, and millennials were really, they, were, they weren't the ones to blame for 2008. No, no, millennials didn't own houses yeah, exactly. in, so, in 2008. But, but even then, like, did they really pay that much attention to the economy? I think they did. I think, I think you do when you see, um, so from a millennial, millennial perspective. When they start comparing things to 1929. I, well, <laughs> I, you know, I've read a few opinion pieces and op-eds, and they talk to, and it's someone who talks to, um, and they get uh, a few boomers who've kind of gotten out there, and they've said, "Well, I talked to my grandkids, or I talked to to my kids who are millennials, and they said, what would you do tomorrow if you won a lot of money?'" And the um, and the expression of the millennial was essentially, "I'd pay down my debt, I'd buy a reasonable home, I'd invest the, you know, I'd sa I'd save for a rainy day, and essentially I'd live a relatively normal life." And I forget who it was, but I, you know, I read this piece, and he said, you know, it was very strange because I, I thought to myself, when I was their age, my response would have been, I'm going to buy a nice car, I'm going to travel the world and do all these fun things. And he realized, oh, wait, because of 2008, because of 2001, you know, because of the war yeah, on terror, com. because of 2008, yeah. because of the dot-com bubble before that in the late 90s, so the millennial generation actually has a lot in common with um, the greatest generation, so the generation that came of age during the Great Depression. He said, we are uncertain. We are, we don't trust that things are going to be better. It's a mentality of, we've seen how bad things are, and we know it's just around the corner. We aren't optimistic. We're, so the millennial generation is not an optimistic generation. So when it comes to, when it comes to stuff like the coronavirus hitting China, mm -hmm. and I think the millennial generation now is starting to reach that point where they're starting to, to figure out how to invest their money and how their money is tied up in the markets. And, you know, like it, this is the time when millennials are starting to meet with financial advisors or, or become financial advisors. Yep, that's true. So, so how does this tie in with the coronavirus? I mean, it, are they going to start becoming defensive because, you know, the top of the world supply chain is kind of like the, the two cars at the front of the two-lane highway that's slowing everybody else down? I think the millennial generation's investments have always been defensive. And so it's true. Like when it comes to things like, um, like dating apps and kind uh -huh. of, and, and kind of, nice. you know, Tinder and these other things where it's essentially, um, Tinder, I hardly know her. <laughs> Not what I heard, buddy. <laughs> um, but when it comes to like kind of this, this, like there is no, you know, it's relationship free. There's kind of this version of really no strings attached relation of, you know, sexual relationships, which, right. you know, it's what people think of the generation, but isn't really all that true. It's not, it's not all that inconsistent with historical generations. The, 
I, if you really look at it, the millennial generation is exceptionally conservative financially. Every, you know, and you hear these, and my favorite thing is you get these complaints like, why aren't you buying houses? And it's like, why would I? I don't want to spend. I think, you know, the millennial generation, I think in a lot of places, thinks that the housing markets are, are yeah, inflated. Yeah, because I, I think growing up in seeing 2008, a lot of millennials are like, dude, we're seeing a lot of signs now of that we saw in 2008 Absolutely. because the economy is doing so well and we haven't seen a bust in forever. Yep, this so, is the, yeah, we were talking last week. This is the longest period of um, oh yeah of uninterrupted growth in U.S. Yeah, history. by far. And it's, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to buy a $200,000 house and then f- six months from now see it be worth you know, half its price. dollars and still be on the hook for that mortgage. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, you, so you're still owed $200,000 for the mortgage because that's what you borrowed it at. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a being underwater. And it's, it's, I think what you're seeing is the millennial generation is very kind of distrustful yeah. and would rather rent and, and kind of save money. Yeah. But so when it comes to, as far as Q1 expectations go, you know, when they come out, you know, we're already seeing a bunch of companies kind of scale back on what, what they're expecting. I mean, I saw a headline the other day. It said Deutsche Bank shaved off, you know, 30 basis points off of Q1 expectations. 30? Yeah. I didn't see that. That's, um, that's but a lot of other But a lot of other banks followed suit, you know, and I kind of think it goes back to this, this millennial mentality of, you know, we can't trust that the economy is always going to grow for us. Yeah. So for me... Looking at kind of the volatility of the market and everything else. Yeah. It looks like, you know, and in keeping with being first, we've got a lot of people who they're chasing that headline and they're waiting for earnings day. They know, I mean, you know, if you, if you kind of classify things down to smart money and dumb money, smart money makes the decision based on evidence and dumb money makes the decision based on, well, I see it's going up, so I'll buy in because there's no way. You know what I mean? Yeah. They make a decision based on, perception versus yeah. based on some sort of knowledge or calculation but the smart money is getting into a lot of these companies because they can say look i think the dumb money will follow i can get my money back that's one and then two they look at it and they go even if they don't the company is performing better than the stock price indicates which to be quite honest in the united states is not really the case because most stocks are overpriced overvalued they're they're all in fact almost all are and that's just there's so but at the same time i don't want to say that they're overpriced because as soon as enough people say that every stock is overpriced it's like bam there goes there, there goes no, all and, the market. and you're right but I'm, when you know i say I mean? like overpriced it's just it means that there's there's a point where the where the price of the stock is backed by the value of the company yeah exactly and like, then there's that big spongy space above like the pillow top of a mattress and yeah, it's exactly. just I think there's a lot of like the pillow tops gotten pretty thick at this point. Yeah. So. And I'm, and I'm sure like, I mean, I'm sure you know how to do like a whack analysis or, oh, yeah. or FCF, you know, yeah. like I, I had to do that once for finance. I don't remember how to do it to be honest with you. But oh, it, it, I mean, you pull up the equation you could, and it's, you pull up the equation, you, you pull up the, data, the yeah. volatility index or not, not the VIX, but the beta. Yeah. Whatever you know? your beta is. And then yeah. yeah, whatever your alpha is and you yeah. kind of run through, you know, I think you look at it, and, and a few people are, you know, a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, a few others I've read have said, you know, there's, there, there's a, it's overpriced, especially the American markets, which is because other people don't like what's happening in their own economy, so they come into the U.S. markets. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of nice to have that, but it's also, it's kind of, if you worry about this runaway pricing where it's like, people are looking to, you know, pigeonhole their money into the U.S. Yeah. for security. But it makes Which is, things less stable here because it means that there's a lot more room for error. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, all, all you're doing is adding – you're making the sponge thicker without adding any sort of 
you yeah. know, substance yeah. to it. You're just getting it, a bigger I mean? sponge. It's, you're making your Jenga tower taller, and eventually it becomes less stable. I know, and the thing is, so, you know, stocks in a lot of ways are kind of like, I don't want to say they're like, they're like treasure yields, but, you know, if everybody wants a certain stock, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if it's backed, like if you do whack analysis or FCS analysis, it, no. it doesn't matter if it's backed, if everybody wants a stock, that stock price is going to go through the roof. Yep. You know, and we saw it with Beyond Meat, right? Like oh, yeah. No, it's, everybody, it's, wanted, everybody wanted it. So that's the stock prices went through the roof. Mm-hmm. And, and and then there's, I'm sure there's plenty of stocks out there, like maybe like a Walmart or something like that, which I, I don't know. I haven't looked into it. But, you know, their stock price might be lower than what it's currently valued at. But it's also not a sexy stock. So. Well, you know, they're... I have my own opinions about Walmart as a corporation of course. that I, you know, I'll keep to myself, but or at least on this episode. Yeah. Um, do I think their later. stock price? I mean, let's see what they. I mean, it doesn't matter what, it, but it, it's it's just one of those things. Like a lot of it's perception. It's a perceived value. Oh yeah, things, absolutely. You know? it's, it's, yeah, there's there is a, there comes a point where you're buying um, stock at the actual value in terms of what it represents as essentially each shares of. You know, the entire purpose of stock or, or a share is that it allow it entitles you as that owner to share in that percentage of whatever the company's profits are. Yeah, exactly. Um, for the period you own it, and so there's a point, yeah, where you're actually looking at it and you're like, you know, in terms of what this company's earning, I it's more than the than the shares are selling for. So right, buy yeah. that. Or if they have high growth expectations. You know, you, 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 you could, yeah. you could, you could not of, be profitable, but if you're mm-hmm. growing there's a, there's like a crazy. Huge, well, there's a huge number of, uh, of factors that go into it. But essentially, you get to a point where you're looking at it at some point, and it's just like, well, you're just buying this because it has name and, name and recognition. It's not, it's not because there's inherently value in the share in and of itself. There's, inherent, there's value because other people yeah, perceive exactly. it to have value. And I feel like that's the case in a lot of tech stocks. But. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at... Amazon stock, you know, you look at the, you do the equations to figure out, oh, how much of this is based on earnings and revenue and how much this is based on the belief, the expectation of future growth. I mean, I did this two summers ago. I looked at it and I think something like 70% plus of the Amazon stock was based on oh, future yeah, absolutely. growth. And, I, and you get to a point now where Amazon's everywhere, you know, its own delivery van. Yeah, but the thing I is, I wonder, where's it going to grow? I know, but the thing is, at the same time, it's, you know, I feel like it's, it's also kind of safe to put your money in a, in a company that's as cash rich as Amazon too. Oh yeah, or Apple. It's not yeah, I mean, Apple and Amazon, are, Apple and Amazon are both incredibly cash rich. So, but the thing is like, you know, with, with the slowdown in this, in the supply chain is this like, are, are we, are we destined to see some sort of brake pumping and beginning of Q2? I think we have to, I think, you know, you look at it and you end up at this point where you're questioning so if, if all this growth has been based on earnings data from the previous quarter, I kind of like this analogy. It's like someone looking in the mirror and going, oh, things were fine back then and ignoring the traffic conditions ahead. Um, yeah, you're right. Because if you look at it, we go, yeah, quarter four was great for a lot of these companies. So if there was no impediment ahead, you get into them because it yeah. looks like they're going to be able to keep going. If the conditions were, were the same, but the conditions aren't the same. There's a there's coronavirus, which is slowing down production in China. There, on top of that, was even before that there was the fact that the Chinese economy was slowing down. Production was slowing down. Yeah, it was slow, I mean the trade war was killing their economy. It wasn't, it, it wasn't helping really anyone. 
to be. It wasn't helping anyone, but. But as a means to an end, that remains to be seen. It, it, um, it hurt them a lot more than it hurt us because our economy grew in the in the period since. Our, mar- our markets, our markets grew. grew, and our and our economy is appearingly strong. Well, our so as a whole, we have other trading partners, and we have enough money in this country that essentially we can try and shore things up. Yeah. For in the short run, I don't know. I think if we look. If we look at quarter one expectations, they obviously have to be much less than quarter four. Yeah, they have to. I mean, because you Let's look. I mean, way, as I was reading it, the two or three weeks of factories being kind of closed in China, they said that's the expectation is that will shave one percent off global growth. Global 1%? growth for this year, just gone. So that's I mean, of of a whole year. Of a whole year. I mean, that's like. Maybe five hundred trillion dollars. I mean, it's no, it's no, it's no, it's no small sum in terms of yeah. production. Well, the thing is, like, because one, not only is China like a big production, you know, they're they're really productive economy, or they they produce a lot of things for the rest of the world, but they also are a huge consumer market. So now for you raw have materials, yeah. for a lot of raw materials, you know, and we talked about this last week when SD Lauder and L'Oreal took a huge hit, and then we're seeing companies like Nike and CAT and John Deere. That are also kind of taking and a hit, Apple. and Apple, they're all taking a hit, but but at the same time, I mean, I mean, their stock prices are swinging day to day, just like the markets are. Yeah, and it's it's one of these things where it makes you wonder: are are people reacting? Kind of, are some people reacting to the data and they're going, "I want to get out because I ex- because they expect kind of because they're more short term." Yeah. So um, if in we, terms of equi- in, in terms of the equity of a lot of these companies, if you're willing to sit on them for 20 more years, it doesn't really matter. It, it doesn't happens. matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Unless you're trying to make a play. You're yeah. trying to So I think what we're probably seeing on some of these cases people unlevering. Yeah, but like a lot of these health and beauty companies, they have such a big presence in China. But no one in China cares about that stuff right now because they have bigger problems. Because yeah, exactly. They have bigger problems than how they look the next day. So Q1 has to be really, really slow for them. And whenever they come out of this, which I don't know, like generally speaking, a lot of these, a lot of these viruses, a lot of these disease outbreaks, they don't affect the economy that much. But I feel like it also depends where it hits. Yeah, it, 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 they, they, do, they do affect the economy, but generally speaking, the economy recovers pretty quickly after. Well, when things return to normal, right. I think. So the difference here is that this virus is um, has infected, has killed more people than SARS did 18 years ago. Exactly. And, and it's tough. It's tougher to die. It's, it's tougher it's, to spot. And it has a very long incubation period. Yeah. So you can have it for 14 days, not know, and during those 14 days, you could be spreading it to a thousand other people. Exactly. You're still infectious. That's the, that's that's really the ultimate, the, the scary thing about it. But I feel like the advancements in medicine here in the U.S. Like we can stop it if you get it. So can, the conclusion kind of is that if you look at illnesses like this, they're not dangerous and de- they're not inherently dangerous in developed countries where there is a medical infrastructure. The concern, though, is if it spreads to a place where there isn't. You know, you see in, in Wuhan, they built several hospitals in, you know, a week. In 10 days, they built multiple hospitals to, that could treat several hundred to, I think, maybe 5,000 people. Yeah. Or you know, they built that in 10 days, and it was because they needed to put the infrastructure in place to deal with this. If it were to get to, if, if the infection were to spread into... Like Shanghai? Well, into Shanghai, you'd see a very, that's China's port major port for their industry so that would be a disaster because then suddenly you've got the issues with these ships moving do they have the disease on them yeah if you have to shut down the planes if you have to shut down the ports it's like okay now Now all these now everything's shut down doesn't matter if the factories are working if they can't if it can't go anywhere yeah so that's an issue and then you've got yeah and then now you have all but if it were to get into if the if if the coronavirus were to spread into some parts of india where they have huge populations 
if you can't get ahead of it, it's going to overwhelm you. It, it grows too quickly. It spreads too quickly. If it were to get into parts of Africa, it'd be a disaster. Parts of you know South America, where if it gets in the Middle East, where there's poverty. You know. Parts of the Middle East, poverty. If it were to get there and spread through these populations, that's the real concern. So the concern really isn't. I mean, the the problem is that yeah, it shut down Chinese factories. Yeah, but the but, concern is that if it gets to, but if there are lives in danger, that's yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I know this is like an economic-based podcast, but yes, ultimately what is more important is the amount of lives that well, could be affected I mean, by this. If you want to take that on from a, from an economic perspective, the fewer people there are, the fewer cons- potential consumers you have. Right, exactly. And, and consumption and, being, and, and, or the fewer laborers you have as well. Yeah, you know? so you have less of a supply there. And you have less not, not, that that's the, not, not that that's the primary function of a human being. That's no, not, not, no, 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 no. But, but in, if you look at it, why there's an economic concern. Yeah, I, just, I just want to make sure that I say that because I don't want people to be like, oh, Aaron's a dick because he doesn't care. I care a little <laughs> bit less if people are like, James is a dick. Yeah. But uh, no, I, that's not. I'm just saying if we're if we're gonna stay on topic, if I we're gonna, if we're gonna ignore the val like the inherent value of human life. Yes, uh, exactly. Then this is the reason. You know, this is kind of the economic rationale for that. So, do you think this is kind of a weird question to ask? But do you think to kind of soften the blow of the potential effects of the coronavirus? Do you think a lot of central banks are gonna try and practice some sort of monetary expansion? I don't think so. I don't. Um, would, it, would it be logical for them to? Let's let's say it that way. It depends. It's all situational. Um, yeah, if you saw your own economy begin to hemorrhage because you because the cost of your inputs had gone up too high and you needed to make credit available just to tide people over, you could do that. I think it's a little kind of. I think it'd be a little easier to create some sort of instead of a instead of a monetary policy change, maybe a, a fiscal policy change where you were to put together some sort of aid package in the what short mean, term. What do you mean, like in bridge the, loans uh, from the like a treasury bridge loan instead of lowering would it be interest rates? Kind of like a like like a form of not like TARP program, but kind of like the TARP program. Similar. Or? So instead of buying troubled assets, which is what TARP was. Um, so say you've got a steel manufacturer that the price of steel has just shot up. You might see the government um, come in and subsidize steel costs, eat some of that pain to keep things going. You might. It, it would take a lot of. I mean, I think you'd have to see. But it'd be. I mean, that'd be billions of dollars. It, yeah. It, if, if, but if, we, so we see this every summer when um, people start driving again. If the if gas prices are too high, you see the government release oil from the strategic oil reserve. So that's what I mean. Like the government eating some of that cost. To try and interfere with the market a little bit to increase the supply. Really? So I you might. The, I don't even know the government does that. I don't even know they had the strategic oil reserve. So we have the strategic oil reserve. So the entire point of the strategic oil reserve is to uh, essentially we have a huge amount of crude oil stored in different caverns and different suppliers around the U.S. Such that in um, the event of a war, we could fuel our military for about 90 days. So they and and they'll release some of that when. In the when, summer, so when oil prices, when, if, if, yeah. When the demand is too high and it's if driving de- up yeah, prices. If demand, if demand gets very high, which it does to it, it tends to at the beginning of summer. People go on vacation. Of course, of course. Yeah. And they drive more. So if you get, um, so at the beginning of summer, if, so not always, but if oil prices are too high, so gas prices are too high, the government will release some of the strategic oil reserve to lower those prices and lower the costs for Americans. So that's how that works. Well, and the thing is, like, I, I feel like the impact of that, and I don't mean to belittle this at all, but mm-hmm. I feel like it's 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 pretty tiny, you know. It's, but that's just me. I granted, I have no, a small you're right. Movie. But like, if if but if the government decides to subsidize steel prices, mm-hmm. it'll have a, an effect for about f- six months, maybe. But you wouldn't. So the thing is, you you 
if it's something, if you're looking at a point where suddenly you're like, wow, we need to start doing our own steel production, that six months might be enough to get new suppliers in line, get the global supply chain stabilized again. Yeah, or like the ISM or whatever. Mm -hmm. or, or long enough to get, um, essentially give businesses and then consumers enough time that it's not just a sudden shock. So it's just kind of to smooth things out. Yeah, and to kind of keep pandemonium from striking the entire yeah. global economy kind of like so it, it is essentially kind of like tarp right it's i mean it's it's it's, it's not it's not tarp obviously because they're not no. buying troubled assets but they're kind of subsidizing yeah they're subsidizing costs long enough for the market to either get a rational control of what's real of what reality the new reality is or for whatever the shock is that's occurred to undo right. itself exactly. so, so it's it's essentially it's an anti-anxiety drug during a panic attack so I want to wrap up here real quick, but would it be, would the sign for the coronavirus or the impending recession that a lot of people are talking about now, it is becoming a more and more popular topic, it seems mm -hmm. like. So would a huge sign of that be the markets kind of leaving the tech aggressive, super volatile stocks and going into things like consumer staples and healthcare, would that be kind of oh, a yeah. sign? Yeah, that would be a, sh that would be a pretty big sign. If you, especially if you see your industrial, if you see the, um, yeah, if you see your major uh, financial institutions start to move into that defensive posture, then that's, that's a pretty big indicator that, um, like those super low beta stocks. Mm -hmm. When you yeah, when you see the um, the major financial players start moving into uh, healthcare, you know, healthcare is definitely one of them. But a lot of the, the other consumer staples and like, yeah, it shows that they're trying to shelter their money. When you see them start to move into those and into bonds, that's oh, a, debt it's, 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 and into it's debt equities. Debt. That shows that they're trying to shore up a portfolio against the perception of um, of a decline. Um, that's pretty scary. I don't know if we're quite. At the I don't think I don't think it's happening yet. Though. I don't no, think, I was going to say I agree. I don't debt. know if we're at a point where where we'd see um, recession yet, I think what we're at a point is where we're gonna see a much smaller growth than we historically have. Hmm. Well, I guess that about does it. We got some customers in the place yep. now, so I gotta wrap this thing up. <laughs> Get back to work, you. I know, seriously. I gotta, I gotta earn the check. <laughs> well, stay drunk and my friends. Goodbye. Cheers.